Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, Grace and Peace to you. Father, as we, as we open up your word today, as we begin to discover, Father, the birth of the church, what that means to the, those early disciples, to those early followers, and what it means to us today, God, I pray that it would transform us, that we begin to be baptized, to be filled by your Spirit, that we be empowered in order to declare your mighty works, to bring you all the glory. Father, uh, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. May our ears be ready to hear, our feet quick to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the early days of of Christianity, uh, a great plague broke out in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, it was at the time, it was very dangerous to be near a person infected with the disease. And to actually touch a person uh, almost certainly meant death. So when this plague broke out, the, the unbelievers in Alexandria would force from their homes anyone who had even the slightest sign of the disease and would, it would, it would, it left them out to starve. They wouldn't even bury the bodies for fear of catching this disease. But the Christians, the Christians were the ones who continued to visit one another, those who were sick with the plague, and no Christian was left to die unattended. They were eager to go and to visit each other, even though they knew that in all likelihood it meant catching this disease. And so as they looked at the people among the bodies of those who were just left out outside the walls of Alexandria, Virginia, not one Christian was left to be found. Because they would take them all in and they would give them a proper burial, proper care, because they believed in the great hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Now, witnesses of this, kind of the unbelievers in that city, they would would ask one another, they said, what is the meaning of this? Like, why are they even doing this? Who is this? And And the answer went throughout all of Egypt that this, this is the religion of Jesus of Nazareth. For these Christians love one another. So this story, I want to use this story kind of as the backdrop for this second week in a series of Unleashed. This is the series, and today we're talking about descending power. Again, a day in the history when God's Holy Spirit came in to birth the church in the whole modern church era. Now I'm going to kind of give you the the, the outline right up front. What we're going to be talking about today is how descending power is ultimately, it's God's promise. And this power that ultimately is the power to live the power to love, and the power to die. So today marks that first day. And we're going to read about that today in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd like to turn with me, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading just verses 1 through 11, which should also be coming up here on the screens. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, in other tongues, as as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now there were some staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the, heart, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, I don't want to like uh, confuse anyone with timing and significance, but what you need to know is that the coming of the Holy Spirit on this particular day in history wasn't due to the fact that the disciples were just huddled up in prayer and really seeking after it. All of this were foreordained by sovereign God according to his perfect timing, his perfect schedule. In fact, the word Pentecost itself means 50 or 50th part. Pentecost is celebrated literally as 50 days after Passover. So we know that on Passover, they used to sacrifice the lamb. Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. And now here, 50 days later, the Jews used to celebrate things. They call it the festival of weeks or the festival of harvest. It's when they would bring the harvest in to celebrate God's goodness and his blessing. It's also a time that the the Jews would would celebrate even the Exodus and and God's giving of the Mosaic law. Because they believed that that the Jews who were held in captivity, that that at Passover when the angel of death came and, and the Pharaoh finally let them go, it was about 50 days as they went out to the mountain where God gave them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So this 50 thing is so clear. And so how fitting is it that God then gives his greatest blessing, his greatest gift to us as believers on this Feast of Harvest, on this Pentecost Sunday. This is one week, 10 days essentially, after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And the disciples were gathered based on Jesus' direction. He told them, do not leave the city, but wait for the gift the Father has promised. He said, in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But I'm still pretty certain he had no clue what he was talking about. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was spoken of last week, Jesus tells him in a statement, which is really essentially kind of the the summary verse, or really the, the purpose of the entire book of Acts is really about this one verse. And when Jesus tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power. It's a Greek word, dunamis, which literally means strength or ability. It's where we get the word dynamite. Dunamis is often used throughout the Bible as both the power to perform miracles and miraculous acts, as well as moral power, moral power or excellence of soul. So Jesus is essentially telling them that I'm sending the Holy Spirit, I'm sending this power both to do, to act, and to be, to live. That's what he's telling them. But he tells them he must go away. He's like, I can't stay here. I've got to go away. But it's ultimately for your good so that God may spend his Holy Spirit to you. In John 14, he talks about this. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is called our teacher, our guide, our comforter, our intercessor. He plays a major role both in that application of salvation in our lives, the conviction of sin. He helps believers that we identify with with Christ in his death and suffering so that we may have victory over sin. The Holy Spirit was here to enable and to equip us for the life that Christ has called us 
to live. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, this is how, this is how Luke starts off. He says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like the sound of a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So these disciples, were, they were gathered up. They were, hung, they, were, they were hunkering down kind of in prayer and anticipation. Most likely, obviously, you would have the 11 disciples minus Judas. You'd have the 11. And then it talks about some of the women. And Mary, Jesus' mother, was most likely there, as well as some of his brothers. And really, there's a whole crowd probably numbering about the 120 disciples that are gathered together, anticipating something, but probably not quite sure what this thing actually is. But then it says, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Notice the sound is like a violent wind, but there is no wind. The air is perfectly still. It's eerily still. The word for sound in the text is echoes. This is literally a sound. It's an echo of heaven. It's like the noise of a hurricane without the hurricane. It actually means breath. It means otherworldly. It's, it's supernatural. It's the breath of heaven that came down and filled up this whole place in a spectacular, indescribable way. There was no doubt that this was not of this world. Verse 3, it says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This was the, the physical manifestation of this spiritual reality that was taking place. Fire is often used throughout Scripture as, as, that rep, as it represents divine presence. Now, this wasn't actual fire. But, but God wanted his disciples to know that, hey, something that's happening here, it's not just happening around you, it's actually happening in you. That literally these, these tongues of fire, these flames that came down out of one and separated onto each one of them without exclusion, all were included to represent that something inside, something unique was now happening in their lives. No one was excluded. excluded. Verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, in studying this text, I believe that Scripture actually indicates that there are really two separate events that are happening here. Two separate events. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the other is the filling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 12, to 13, 12 verse 13 says, For we are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one Body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So the, whole, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is literally an act by God where the Holy Spirit places the believer into the body of Christ. It's a, it's a non-experiential event. When you're baptized in the Spirit, you don't feel this ooey-gooey thing. It's not this shouts and acclamations of joy. It's literally just it's a positional change that, that the Holy Spirit comes up, takes residence inside of you. You are now part of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You are now sealed. You are now part of this unity. When Jesus talks about they will be as one, you're now into the body of Christ because of this baptism of the Spirit. The tongues of fire demonstrate that. It says that each person has been baptized together into one body. However, this divine enablement, this this tongues thing, represents something a little bit different, what we call the filling of the Spirit. See, baptism and filling are two separate things. When we yield our lives to the control of the Spirit, we are filled with the Spirit, which enables us for ministry. We constantly see this in Scripture. 
All the times in Scripture we see Peter and, and Paul and Stephen, several times people before either proclaiming the word, before boldly sharing their faith, before even being persecuted, martyred, it says they were filled with the Spirit. It's a word that literally means to be being kept filled. You see, we have a choice in our lives, and we can either yield to the Spirit or yield to the world. And by the law of expulsion, no two things can exist together in the same place. And so either you're going to drink in and take in of the world and, and all the media and the social media and the desires and lusts and temptations and all these things, and it's going to fill you up and you're not going to leave much room left for the Spirit, or you're going to yield to the Spirit and you're going to be filled up like this so that your body becomes that temple. And so what he's saying is we are to be being kept filled, that as you expel these other things out, you leave more room for the Spirit of God to then work through you, to enable you, to work through your mind, to work through your abilities, through your talents, in order to accomplish what he wants to do through you for ministry. They're two separate things. John MacArthur says that baptism essentially is like positional, but filling is practical. In baptism, it grants the power, but filling turns it on. So as you yield more time in prayer and in reading the Word and in studying Scripture and fellowship and all those things, you become more yielded to the Spirit for both life and ministry. A great example of this is in the story of Billy Graham. Many of us would know who Billy Graham is. Well, in 1946, Billy Graham had an experience with the Holy Spirit that forever changed his life and ministry. In that year, he met a man named Stephen Olford whom he deeply admired. And he said this man had a, had a certain dynamic, a thrill, an exhilaration that was very inspiring to him. He wanted what this man had. He wanted to capture it. Stephen began to tell him about this complete submission to the Spirit, this complete dying to self where the Lord becomes more, like takes liberty in your life and empowers you to do so much. And so they began to study together and fast together and pray together. They met for several hours after praising and praying, and Billy began to pour out from his heart this, this total dedication to the Lord in prayer. As they came to a time of rest, Billy exclaimed, My heart is so flooded with the Holy Spirit. They wept and they laughed. Billy began to kind of walk back and forth across the room, saying, I have it, I have it, I'm filled, I'm filled. This is the turning point of my life. This will revolutionize my ministry. And it did. Just a few nights before, he had preached a sermon with very little impact, very little power. But in this next message, people were clamoring to come down the aisles. People responded in multitudes. One of his traveling companions that used to go with Billy said, something transformationally different happened that night. And from then on, there was a magnificence of effect. It was fascinating. It was truly Impressive, And that fullness, being filled with the Spirit, would then forever, from that point forward, mark his ministry. So as we are filled with the Spirit, we are literally enabled with power from on high. And that power, as we talked about, that first is first and foremost the power to live. That's the first thing we have, the power to live. That's when it talks about this enablement. That's the, that's the word that's used in, in, in Acts there, that the Spirit enables us to live. Because the, the Spirit produces fruit in our lives. So some of the byproduct of walking with the Spirit, of yielding our life to Him, is producing that fruit. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things begin to flow out of us as believers as we are yielding our life to the Spirit. That's the first part. It also begins to produce these gifts of the Spirit. The gifts that we find in the Spirit. Some of them, they're called motivational gifts. Do you know that when you come into faith in Christ, 
And when you are baptized into the Spirit, God gives you a deposit, a gift of His Spirit. And a gift, part of that gift, and some have more, but all have at least one. Gifts in preaching and teaching and serving or encouragement, exhortation or administration or, or mercy or giving or hospitality. These are gifts. And so you, you say these seem like passions, but those passions which maybe you had, all of a sudden God like motivates that. He accelerates that. So you, you want to do that at the next level. You want to serve. You want to give. You want to help. You, you can't stop it. And the Bible says don't, don't ever try to snuff those out. Don't ever despise the gift. Operate in it. You know why? Because we're the body. And the body, we need everybody. We need those who preach and teach and those who serve and those who give and those who are hospitable and those who are great in administration because we are all members, parts of one big body. And we've got to work together to edify the body, to glorify the body, the building up of the saints. And there's another type of gift, kind of what we see here in this text. There's this manifestation or these sign gifts, which sometimes we don't know a lot about. Gifts of word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and interpreting tongues. Now, we don't have time to like dig into those, how and why those are, or where those are present, those gifts, but understand that we are ultimately given, they are all ultimately given for the building up of the body, not for personal gain or glory. God dispenses these gifts as we have that power to live in unique ways. As we are filled with the Spirit, we can become more responsive to different ways. God may want to use us in those areas, even in miracles, in healing, in tongues, all those different things for the building up of the body, for the edification of the saints. Now, but for our text here today, in Acts chapter 2, the tongues that are described here in Acts are literally and unquestionably other known languages. That's all it is. This is not some uh, Holy Spirit groaning. This is not some barble, like, you know, stuff, utterances you can't understand. These are other known languages throughout the world. The, the text here uses tongue, tongues. They use both, where it, these are other known both languages and dialects. It would be, in this case, it would be like me just spouting off like fluent, not just Chinese, but fluent Cantonese Chinese, a dialect, which I would have no, I don't even one word in Chinese, yet I'd be able to do both. Uh, for any older you know, people here, it'd be like, or younger people especially, it'd be like your grandma who gets her first cell phone and has never literally even turned on a phone in her life and all of a sudden is sending texts with like emojis and all the abbreviated shortening words like, you know, I-L-O, like I love you, or uh, I don't even know half the things, like R-O-L-F, uh, rolling on the floor laughing, you know, all these, I don't even use them, but like imagine if all of a sudden you get this text from grandma and it's like all these abbreviated codes, you're like, how did she learn that? What are these emojis? Pop? Like, how did she even know how? She didn't know how to turn it on. You know, almost to that level of like significance that they were like shocked. How is this possible? How could this be? And that's that power, the power to live. That's what the Holy Spirit does in each one of us. The power to edify the body. The second thing we see here is the power to love. Listed among several of these people are groups from some pretty like nefarious places. The places that some of the people that, that, that Acts lists here where they're coming from aren't the most like, great people to identify with. In fact, one of them, Paul, uh, Luke identifies here Cretans. So we're here loving the Cretans. Well, in, in the book of Titus, Paul talks about the Cretans. And he actually quotes one of the Cretan scholars. One of the Cretan scholars themselves said about their own people, said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's not the way I would want anyone to talk about us here or anywhere. 
you know. But that's how Cretans were described. And yet these are the ones that when the Holy Spirit comes, I mean, think of it this way. The Holy Spirit comes in, all these people gather together. Thousands of people come to the temple at Pentecost. And they're coming to come to the temple because at the time the temple is a place. But then all these Jews are going to hear the gospel and they're going to leave because now the temple is inside of us. And they're going to now go to their own places. And what it's saying is that there's no discrimination in this. That all are welcome. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, black, white, does not matter. There is no distinction in the body that the most who seem the most unlovable will ultimately be part of this kingdom. And we are called to love even those. We're called to love the least of these, the greatest of these, everybody in between. That's what he's saying. And that's what the Spirit does. Gives us that strength to love. For those who've been around me for a little while, you know that like people I've talked to, like this has become kind of a, a banner in my life recently, something I'm trying to learn and strive for. Like how do we demonstrate true Christian love and true Christian care for one another as the Bible intended, as it's written in there? You know, when, when, a, when a teacher of the law came to Jesus the one time, he said, Jesus, what is the, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus summarized the 10. He said, well, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he did. He said, we we're called to love God supremely, which means he is everything. We give him everything we are. And we're called to love our neighbor, those who are around us benevolently. Wish them well, do them well. Seek no harm. Treat others as we want to be treated. But then later on in John chapter 13, Jesus is at the Last Supper. He's the day before he's about to be executed. The day before he's about to be crucified, he's meeting with his disciples. And Judas, the, the traitor, had now left. So he's now with his 11 closest followers. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. It's what Charles Spurgeon called the 11th commandment. It's the commandment we're supposed to live by in this body. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You're about to see what that looks like tomorrow. Because greater love is no one that he that would lay his life down for his friends. You're called to love us because he says, by this, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Not by the size of our building, not by the landscaping up front, not by how great the worship is. All that stuff matters. It does. But that's not going to be how the world knows that we're disciples of God. It's by if we love one another. Because if they come in here and all they see is bickering and infighting and gossip, guess what? All this stuff seems fake and not real to them. It's all a farce. But it's the Holy Spirit that enables us, that gives us the power to love in a way that we're not capable of loving on our own. We're not capable of loving people selflessly and sacrificially as the Bible intended. Apart from the indwelling power and filling of the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. And that's what we need. And that's what he's talking about. Finally, the Holy Spirit gives us that power as believers, the power to die. Acts 1.11 says that all these visitors who had come into Jerusalem heard one thing, one thing being declared from the mouth of these transformed disciples. One thing was the wonders of God, the marvelous works of God. Think about this radical change. To this point, these disciples had been fearful cowards and deniers. They were often hiding, often running. We don't see anyone at the crucifixion except John. Who knows where everyone else went? When Jesus wasn't around, they often went back to fishing. Maybe to what's comfortable. Maybe to what was safe. But coming out of this moment, they were empowered to share boldly the marvelous works of God. They were no longer shy, fearful, apathetic, or anything except on fire to share what God had done in their lives. In fact, when we read church history, we read that 10 of those 11 remaining disciples died a martyr's death. They were crucified for their faith in Christ. 
And only John died of natural causes while being exiled for his faith. There's a boldness. There's a, there's a power. The Holy Spirit, in essence, comes into the life of a believer, which gives us the power to die. At the very beginning of this message, you remember that I, would, I said Acts 1.8. It's kind of the pivotal verse about this whole book of Acts. When he says, the Holy Spirit will come to you, will get power, and you will be my witnesses. Right? Well, witness, the word, Greek word for witness is martis. It's martyr. Jesus is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes to you, he's giving you the power to die for me. He's giving you the power to die for an idea, for a truth that you know is the absolute truth. For a truth that you know transcends the, the things of this world. It's a truth that's beyond anything else can comprehend. He's giving you the power to literally lay down your life and to die for me. This dunamis power is to lay down, to die to our own self, to take up our cross, to follow him. Martyr, the definition of martyr is those who, after Christ's example, have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in him by undergoing a violent death. Aside from the command to follow me, Jesus repeats losing our lives for his sake more than any other saying. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. That's the power of Pentecost. That's the power of what we experience today as new converts, as people who come into faith. We're positionally birthed into this body and then we're, we're powerfully given these gifts and this ability, this enablement, this deny, divine enablement, which is that power to love, the power to live, to live a life that we could not possibly live on our own and the power ultimately to die, to lay down our lives. For all of you sitting there, Maybe you saw in one of your pews, there's a little handout. Pastor John asked if we'd be willing to just pass these out for everyone here today. It's a little gospel tract, which basically, in, in essence, in a very nutshell, simplifies the story of our faith. For all of us, I would challenge people to take it home, to read through it, to learn more about how would I share my faith, what is that testimony, and maybe have that courage to even hand this to someone else. Because if you are in here, and you are in Christ... You're a new creation. The old is gone, new has come, and you are now signed in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have eternity in your future, but you know people, friends, family, neighbors who do not. And if we believe this whole thing, are you willing to risk that for them and not share? Being a martyr, being a martyr steps out of your comfort zone. It does things that you don't feel comfortable about, you don't feel easy, but it's stepping out to do what God intends for us to do. That early church in Alexandria, Egypt, knew this dunamis power of the Spirit. They demonstrated the power to live, to love, and to die, literally giving up their lives for one another. So the challenge for all of us is, are we willing to truly do the same? In a culture where Christians are known as judgmental, hypocritical, legalistic, irrelevant, Jesus said, the world will know you, my disciples, if you love one another, mutually, selflessly, sacrificially. Only through the Spirit, through this divine gift of Pentecost, is any of this possible. And may it be so in our lives, for His glory, in Jesus' name. Father, on this day of Pentecost, as we celebrate the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, as we celebrate what you did to birth your church in this present day to regenerate our lives, God, I pray that each one of us here would first submit to you, so that you may regenerate us, so that we may pass from death to life, so that the old will be gone, the new will come, you will give us a new heart, make us a new creation. 
God, and then even after that, I pray that each one of us would even daily, moment by moment, submit to you, to yield to the Spirit. God, that you may fill us up. And that when you fill us up, you enable us for ministry. Ministry we can't do on our own. The ministry to love, to live. Ultimately, God, to die. I pray that for all of us. And that this body, these people, would be an expression of that early church. That love so well, we'd be willing to give up our own lives so that you would become famous and your kingdom would grow. In Jesus' name, amen.